You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Morning. I'm Heidi. I'll do your reading today, which is Titus 2. Everyone found it. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, and to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and sound of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Saviour, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thanks, Heidi. Well, good morning, everyone. So I was really pleased to uh, give that difficult passage away to Josh, but he's sadly ill. (laughs) COVID has hit their household, so uh, last minute I've had to step in. So if it's a brilliant talk, um, thank me. If it's terrible, just email Josh. Um, So let's pray for Josh and Hannah and Ivy. Um, I know they're watching live stream, which is a wonderful blessing. So let's just pray for them. Yeah, Father God, we just want to bless Turner family right now in Jesus' name. And we just speak uh, healing, health and wholeness and peace uh, to them as a family. And that, Lord, you would raise them up and, uh, yeah, heal them quickly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So delighted to be unpacking uh, Titus chapter 2 in a series uh, all about life and leadership in this uh, wonderful book. And we're asking the question, how as followers of Jesus do we live and lead well in this season of life, in our cultural moment that we live in today? Leadership is something, as we unpacked last week, for every single one of us, 
we're all leading. I believe that discipleship in a post-Christian context actually means leadership in the church, in our workplaces, just wherever we find ourselves in. And healthy leadership is something that is massively required right now in our time. The world is looking for healthy leadership. And uh, if you're new to church or you missed last week, I just want to set some context, Ari, this uh, little book. Uh, There's a, a move of God that is happening on the island of Crete. And Paul has sent one of his protégés, a man called Titus, to the island to bring order and to bring instruction to the followers of Jesus there and the churches that are scattered there. And the culture of the island of Crete is notorious. It's notorious um, for evil, for violence, for sexual corruption, uh, really a disordered value system. Some might say like we experience today here in the Western world, completely at odds to the way of Jesus and the values of the kingdom. Now, here's the thing. There's a whole bunch of followers of Jesus and churches that are being influenced and formed more by this culture rather than the way of Jesus. And so, as a result, many Christians in these churches um, have lives have churches, have homes, more importantly, they're an absolute mess. It's just a mess. And so Paul, through Titus, is wanting to bring a level of perspective and order to leadership. Titus 1, as we looked at last week, is all about establishing uh, healthy leaders of great character. And uh, we unpacked last week that the central thing, yes, gifting is important, abilities are important, God uses our idiosyncrasies and our personalities, our natural talents, chemistry, all these things, yes, are important, but character is what it is all about. Character is the most important thing when it comes to leadership. And then Titus, this chapter, really unpacks this question, how do we live as followers of Christ in a non-Christian, post-Christian culture so that we can see the culture all around us transformed and influenced for Jesus and the kingdom. So if Titus 1 is about who we need to be in order to lead others well, Titus 2 is about how do we lead ourselves well and in such a way that the world around us is changed. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'm convinced in our world today, we not only have a crisis of leadership that we're experiencing, but we also have a crisis of self-leadership. And I think much of that, if I'm honest, as I've been reflecting about it uh, over the last hour when Josh gave me the news, um, is that I think we've emphasized rights over responsibility. I think our society is much more focused and interested on our individual rights rather than our individual and therefore our corporate community-minded sense of responsibility. I think also we have a society, and when I talk about society, I'm not saying, oh, out there and we're excused from that. I'm talking about myself. Is we're really quick, aren't we, to blame other people. When something goes wrong, the first thing is, who can I blame? Can I blame my circumstances? Can I blame the people around us? Can I blame the leaders? Can I blame um, 
the enemy? Can I even blame God? It's just someone take the blame for what is going on in my life. But I believe that the Bible throughout encourages something called sober judgment. The Bible calls us first of all to look into our own hearts and into our own lives before we start to look out there. Jesus put it this way, didn't he? Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and yet pay no attention, completely ignore the massive plank in your own eye? And we're really good, aren't we? We're really good, especially in the church of, hey, that, you've got this, you've got that, you've got that speck of sawdust. And yet all along, we have something in our own eye. And this is why we need self-leadership. We need to lead ourselves well under the leadership of Jesus. Leadership is primarily about following Christ, but also we need to take responsibility for our own choices, for our own decisions. I love this definition. Self-leadership is the practice of intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling, and actions towards your objectives. Self-leadership is simply leading yourself well towards God's vision for your life. So let me ask you an honest question. What leads you? Just think about that for a moment. What leads you? Who, who are you led by? What directs the course of your life? What influences your choices and impacts and influences your behavior? I'm not sure that many of us actually contemplate the kind of lives we should be living because I think for many people, many followers of Jesus, we often live our lives by default rather than design. We often um, lead by a sense of autopilot, that if it happens, it happens, que sera, sera. Disengage from the intentional practices of leading ourselves well day in, day out. And that's why so many people, and we've seen it particularly in the last couple of years with COVID, get blown by that wind of teaching in the culture and so we end up lo looking and living a lot more like the culture than we do living and looking like Jesus. And so God, I believe, is inviting us to self-leadership again, to, to lead lives through intentionality by design, not by default. How many of you have, have, have uh, started to do some gardening recently with the nice weather? And um, I'm just amazed, I was doing some yesterday, how quickly things just get overgrown. I think my, my lawnmower nearly broke, the grass was so long, that's just literally leaving it for a couple of weeks. And um, that's what happens when you, when you let nature take its course on something like a garden. When you rem remove a steward from the land, then it quickly grows out of control. And our lives and our hearts without self-leadership often happens like this is that we allow the circumstances of life and the things which choke our hearts and the things which influence us from the outside in to influence us to such an extent that our lives grow into disarray and grows out of control and so we quickly become formed by the world rather than the spirit of Jesus and Proverbs teaches us doesn't it to Above all else, above everything, make it your priority, your number one thing, because this is how important it is, is to guard your heart, to guard my heart, for out of it flows 
the issues of life. Out of it flows everything in life out of your heart. Therefore, guard it. Guard it. And I think to do that requires self-leadership. Titus 2 is all about how do we garden our souls well? How do we lead ourselves well? How do we lead our families well and our churches well? and our homes well, so that the world around us can be transformed for the kingdom. So, looking at this passage that Heidi read out to us, my first observation is that transforming the world around us begins by transforming the world within us. It's impossible to lead others well, to to make a difference in the world, to leave a legacy beyond ourselves if we do not lead ourselves well. And what Paul seems to be teaching here, if if you look into it, is it's an ordinary life. To lead yourself well is actually to pay attention most of the time to things which are completely ordinary in life. Not the extraordinary things, but actually ordinary things. It's the unspectacular of life. It's the ordinary moments of choosing well and living well and making healthy choices and leading our families well. This is what will transform culture. Now I think our society is obsessed with the extraordinary, isn't it? It's obsessed with the spectacular. And actually this is entered into the, the church. I believe the spirit of the world and the spirit of the age has entered into the church where the emphasis is on the biggest church. It's on the giftedness of leaders. It's on charisma. We, we long, don't we, to be, to be popular, to be beautiful, to be handsome, to be successful. And of course, social media. And I believe social media is not something we should reject. It's something we should redeem. But often that feeds in to our insecurity and anxiety by celebrating The spectacular over the ordinary. The insta-life feeds comparison so that we see people living a life that we wish we had. And therefore it leads often to anger, to bitterness, to self-pity, to many things. We post photos of our lives devoid of anything ordinary to present the life we wish that we had. And so with a world... I think obsessed with the spectacular, with extraordinary. Being ordinary is resistance. I wonder if you switched on God TV this morning, you would hear a sermon that says, be ordinary. Don't try and be a world changer. Don't try and be spectacular. Don't try and be relevant. Be more ordinary. I think is what the church needs to be in its authentic self in today's world. I love this quote from Bob Thune. It says, it's the older I get, the more I aspire to live quietly and faithfully in my little corner of the world, loving my actual flesh and blood neighbors, seeking the good of my city, serving in ordinary and imperfect ways in my ordinary and imperfect local church. That should be, and this is the vision of our church. When we talk about home and we hear, I mean, wasn't that story so moving by Yvonne and and, and the guys there on that video, just Wow, Uh, incredible. But this is what it means. We're we're here to be an imperfect home for our city. And it's going to be imperfect because it's full of people like you and me. And people are looking for the perfect church. We'll never ever find the perfect church because we're in it. 
and we've got all our wounds and we've got our brokenness and we've got our temptations and we've got various things going on in our world but this is what makes the redemptive power of the gospel so beautiful Jesus takes that which is trash and takes that which is broken and junk and he makes things beautiful out of it the redemptive power of the gospel in the life of the believer and so yeah we don't we love the church don't we love when the kingdom of God advances in a way where there's breakthrough and in a moment and we've been seeing it a lot of late but in a moment you can see salvation you can see healing you can see freedom deliverance in a moment but more often than not the kingdom of God the Bible teaches grows slowly like yeast in a dough minute by minute moment by moment as we say yes to the invitation of Jesus to become more like him in the ordinary. This is the slow work of God that we must celebrate. We must celebrate the process of discipleship over a whole life rather than the spectacular, extraordinary events, the miraculous in the twinkling of an eye. Yes, we want that. We're leaning into it. Join us in our prayer meetings. We're longing for it. We're longing for revival. But revival starts on a Monday morning at work with a boss that you don't like and just speaking to them submitting to them as though you would submit to Jesus and winning them over by the busyness and the quietness and the hard work of your life this is the slow work of God so this is the kind of people that Paul here is encouraging the followers of Jesus to become Look at, look at the list of things, sober-minded, steadfast, loving, submissive, kind, not argumentative, self-controlled. And you ask yourself how many of these character traits are celebrated, not just in the culture, but also in the culture of the church. I would say not often. We love to express our desire and love for the spectacular, but actually, hold on, Let's talk about being sober-minded. Let's talk about not being argumentative. Let's talk about being submissive. You go on social media, which is really an, an x-ray of the soul of our culture, and you'll see almost none of these are celebrated in the church, which is really concerning. We long for relevance, don't we, at the expense of reverence. And so when we come and we gather as a church or in home group or do life, we should be leaving with a sense of reverence. We should be leaving with a sense of a hunger and desire for holiness. Rather than, hey, that was just a great service. That was relevant. I liked the songs. The coffee was organic and lovely. I got my cold brew and the kids have a massive slide in the kids' ministry and their eyes get scanned on the retina scan as they go in. It isn't church awesome. We should be moved in a place of contrition and repentance to be more like Jesus, blown away by his goodness and mercy, in love with his word, in love with him more and more. And so we've got to go slow. It's the ordinary, it's the unseen, the hidden, invisible ways. Grandparents. I was saying this to Joni this weekend. Why is it that grandparents always say the right thing? I know some of you think not my grandparents, but anyway. 
But they do just, just, I'm like, I'm trying to think of something, you know, wisdom to say to the kids. But grandparents just seem to have the right way to say it. And I just love that. And we should be getting all the young people in this church to be speaking to the older people in our church and just getting some wisdom from them. How do I live life? How do I navigate this? This is what I love about the church. The church is the marriage, the outpouring of the spirit in the early church of the young and the old coming together. The vision and the dreams coming together. And that is what is so beautiful about the, the church. Notice that Paul doesn't emphasize, here are some strategies to grow your church. Here are some top marketing things to grow your church. What he is saying is that followers of Jesus need to tell an alternative story with their lives. A story marked by followers of Jesus who simply do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. Who are unconcerned with the allure of the world which has crept into the church. Which says pursue instant results and profile and platform and popularity. And if we're not careful... And we must guard the heart of our church and shepherd it well in leadership that we're not aligning our value system with the culture of the world rather than the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is upside down. Completely upside down. I want to submit to you this morning that changing the world around us could just be one or two, our neighbours, our people at work, happens through people like you and I just saying yes to Jesus in the ordinary every single day. So my second observation is in order to transform culture, we need to form, as Christians, a counterculture. We need to be the change that we want to see. We need to be the difference that we talk about. No point saying, Lord, bring change and let us see a difference in our day and age and send revival if we're not willing to be the answer to our own prayers and desires. Notice that Paul, and this is always the case, was less concerned about getting Cretan culture to change than he was to get Christians to change the focus was on judgment begins at the house of God we don't curse the darkness out there but we just simply show up as the light of the world Christ in us the hope of glory Paul knew that transformed Jesus centered homes and families would bring life to the culture But the church has to look radically different from the world around us. Ben Sixsmith, writing The Spectator, said this, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. We should be living lives and not draw controversy or criticism. It's not about violent rebellion or volume, but it's by a simple quiet lives that we tell a beautiful redemptive story of the kingdom of God someone asked me the question why do I think that the church 
has lost a lot of its power and potency in today's day and age is because primarily we have allowed idols into the life of the church and it is idolatry which always robs us of power. And so when a church seeks to become often in inverted commas liberal and becomes to be relevant to the world around us and let's sync with the culture around us then that's allowing the idolatry in which robs the church of its power. And we need to be different. We need to so be with people that we're like Jesus, a friend of sinners, but we need to be radically different. So our hearts are for Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no room for other affections and idols in our heart and in our lives. And that is where we see the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4 says it's make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. <laughs> I love that. Work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, uh, wrote a great book called Creative Minority. He writes this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money, promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. This is what it means to be a counterculture church which transforms the world around us. So if we're going to win our city for Jesus, it's not going to be about yelling at people about their problems because we've got enough of ourselves. It's not going to be pointing the wagging finger of judgment, but it's actually telling a subversive narrative with our own lives. That is how we are missionaries in our society. With resistance, with resistance. So Paul paints a picture and he takes groups of people and it's basically a blueprint for a countercultural life. So verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. In other words, older men live with a gravitas that comes from years of knowing Jesus. Faithfully serving him day in, day out. And this is how you should live, dignified self-controlled, steadfast. And this is so much more important than what you do in life. Where we uh, talk about wealth or possessions or titles, it should always be about character, about who you are. It's about your inner posture of your life. Older men are called to be a non-anxious presence, full of love, self-control and dignity. That's why I love getting around older men who have walked with Jesus for many more years than I have. And you can just sense there's a, in a, over the years, it's been a, a posture that they've lent into, yielded to, of Christ-likeness, which is so attractive. You, you want to follow Christ like they follow Christ. And it's all to do with the love in their hearts, the dignity of how they carry themselves. And that is so opposite to the older men in the Cretan culture talked about in chapter 1. Cretans are always, it says, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul here is saying, older men, live differently to those around you. Instead of gluttony, be filled with self-control. Instead of lying, be filled with love. Be sober-minded and dignified. 
Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. And so you can imagine in that culture you had the older women who drink far too much, well known for, for gossip and irreverence. And Paul is saying, so let's not, we can't apply these texts as like, okay, you must not do this. Here the, in the kind of the exegesis of this, it's the heart, it's the principle of how to live differently in the culture that they were experiencing these things. Live differently. Don't gossip. Don't get drunk. And he encouraged them to train the younger women. In other words, model a godly life to the emerging generation. Model a godly life to the emerging generation. It says young women should love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul here had the first working from home policy. I know we've, we've got used to that during COVID. And we shouldn't read our Western worldview into this that all women should just stay at home, can't have jobs. But Paul was speaking to a context where that was more normal. And so where that is the norm, use your ministry and your life for the glory of Jesus. Be the difference in a culture where young women were being incredibly promiscuous. He's calling the young women who follow the way of Jesus to tell a different story. Be submissive. Now I know submission is like a dirty word in life. We hate that even in the church. But right there and then there was so much abuse in and out of the church. And, but don't forget, Paul talks about this in Ephesians, and uh, we did a, Joni and I did a, uh, an interview about this. You could get it on, on the website um, a few months ago. I think it was in November I did it. And um, where, there's that passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul wrote to the Ephesians and saying, look, husbands, it's your job. It's on you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You won't have any issue with the whole idea of submission under authority if you love your wives and put your wife first in everything. If you lay your life down for your wife, if you die to yourself like Jesus did on the cross, agape love, not manipulating, not domineering, but serving, washing the feet of the one that you love. That is what it means to have a healthy church and a healthy home. It's so countercultural, isn't it? So transformational. But imagine if we had homes where husbands truly loved their wives, where wives loved their husbands, where parents loved their kids, families that are led well and grown well with a subversive transformational presence in the world we can see incredible change. Mother Teresa lived in the constant presence, didn't she, of heartache and death and disease. And says this, she stared down the cruelty of loneliness with the gaze of suffering love. Once when asked, what could be done in the light of so much evil in the world? She replied, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Go home and love your family. That doesn't sound extraordinary. It doesn't sound spectacular. But in the kingdom of God it really is 
everyday ordinariness is really what Jesus is looking for in our lives. How much husbands did you love your wives? Do you know our, our prayers, Peter says this, you know, our prayers are affected if you do not treat our wives properly. Some of you may be working like, why is my life not working out right now? I'd say, how are you treating your wife? It's so, so important. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I love that. You've got all these lists of character traits. And you come to young guys, just control yourselves. <laughs> come on, just stop looking at porn. Just smash your computer. Just get a grip. Just control yourselves. All you've got to do, one job. And I just wonder, I was thinking about this, how much would our society change if we understood self-control? How many wars would be avoided if people had self-control? Human trafficking be avoided with self-control. Addiction, self-control. It's all about self-control. You know, most, they say that most affairs happen in a 10 second window. And it's a 10 second window where you have a choice. And it comes down to this self-control. And you know, if you say yes in that 10 seconds to maybe, hey, let's, let's have a coffee out of the office together and just chat over some things. And then you start saying, well, do you know what? My, my wife, you know, I wish you'd do this and I wish you'd say this and she doesn't and I'm kind of struggling. And that's the emotional hook. And you find yourselves when you're later down the line and you're in the divorce courts and you're you're grieving because you can't get to see your kids like you used to, it all happened in a 10 second moment. You just dwelt for too long. You just stayed in that place for too long. In that place of your thinking, the place of your emotions. Younger men, and those of you who are married and young who are aspiring to be married, you need to lean into, more than anything, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. Self-control. Don't be led by your flesh, your desires, your need for affirmation, your cravings. Don't look at Instagram and think, I want this, and be self-controlled. I wonder what Paul would be saying to us right now in our society. Fractured, emotionally wounded, materialistic, consumerist, media-obsessed. I wonder what Paul might say. I think he would say this, slow down, Christians. Be content with less. Get off the screens and close to people. Listen well. Refuse to believe the lies. Love your families well. Lean into holiness and the unspectacular and the slow burn of life. I believe that is what he would be encouraging us to do. And so you see with this, all these groups that he talks about, I'm just going to come and finish and we're going to pray. With older men, women, younger men and women, parents, spouses, children, talks about slaves, which really are hired servant, which of course is very common in those days. He's saying, tell a different story with your lives. Tell a different story with your lives. Build healthy homes. I believe what is key to cultural 
And citywide transformation is that when we start to build healthy homes. We, we talk about the vision of our church being about home, and that starts in our four walls of our home where we live and how we live there and how we lead there. This is God's primary method of transforming the world. It really is. It's not about, hey, can we just turn up at church for a couple hours on a Sunday and maybe a couple hours midweek and... Dan White says this, nothing has been quite so damaging to the spirit of the church than organizing in such a way that we can drive to its location, listen for about an hour, say hi to a few folks, and then leave. It's not about having a downloadable experience, but it's about looking like family, a radical community that's actually built a home and then an extension of home and the family here in church. So how we live at home, how we interact with our spouse, how we love our kids, how we do the normal everyday ordinary life has the power to transform our world. Gathering around a table with neighbors, with friends, with enemies, local, faithful, small presence. This is how we change the world. This is where the power is. Hundreds hundreds of us scattered this afternoon back to our streets and neighborhoods and villages and communities. This is how we bring light and hope. Thank you for listening to the Hall Vineyard podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.